0: I believe we are in a season in which God is judging both the human leaders and the spiritual leaders of the earth. Just as God was delivering his people from slavery in Egypt, and he sent 10 plagues on the Egyptians, I believe we are in a period of plagues. Well, welcome to the Gods of the West podcast series here on Way of Life, Christian Fellowship. We are offering a bonus episode this week, and the reason for this is multiple, but essentially I felt like the Lord wanted uh, me to talk about a few things that are not specifically within the series. We're not talking today about uh, Pharaoh or about Egypt or about the plagues or about how those plagues are being played out in our day. But instead I wanted to talk about uh, judgment and what it means to judge our enemies. And for that we're going to look at a teaching of Jesus. So this bonus episode I hope will be helpful, I hope it will be edifying, Um, I hope it will be a corrective for some of us as we start to think about um, those with whom we disagree in our culture, but it's not going to interrupt the normal schedule for the Gods of the West podcast, we'll still be uh, releasing episode 7 on Saturday. But I hope the bonus episode will prove helpful to you. I know that the study and the writing of it and the research of the Word have been greatly helpful for me. So this is a bonus episode. I don't know how many of these we'll do. I didn't plan this one. I don't plan to do any more, but we'll see. But we'll stay on our regular schedule. We'll, in addition to this bonus episode, also be releasing episode 7 on Saturday. So thanks for joining with us. I hope this series has been helpful to you. Matthew chapter seven, verses one through six. Recall for us the following teaching of Jesus. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, and turn, and tear you to pieces. Why do governments all over the world employ systems of criminal justice? Lots of theories have been suggested in recent decades. For example, punishment as a deterrent, punishment as a type of sanitation, punishment as a type of rehabilitation, punishment as a simple application of justice that's not concerned with outcomes, and the list could go on. The Law of Moses, and the resultant culture of first century Judaism that had grown out of it, were quite concerned about lawbreakers. The story of the sin of Achan, Israel's defeat at Ai and the remedy which led to a restoration of God's favor seems to represent the old covenant assumption well. This is from the book of Joshua, chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully regarding the things designated for destruction. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the designated things. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth aven east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. Then they returned to Joshua and said to them, Do not have all the people go up. Have only about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not trouble all the people there, for they are few. So about three thousand men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck and killed about thirty-six of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them on the mountainside. And the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the ground on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan only to hand us over to the Amorites to eliminate us? if only we had been willing to live beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear about it, and they will surround us and eliminate our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also violated my covenant which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things designated for destruction, and have both stolen and kept it a secret. Furthermore, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, because they have become designated for destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you eliminate from your midst the things designated for destruction. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath it. So they took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel, and they laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the Valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you brought disaster on us? The Lord will bring disaster on you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they erected over him a large heap of stones that stands to this day, and the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Accor to this day. In this instance, God held the entire community accountable for the rebellious, unconfronted act of one family. Perhaps what is not as clear in the story but is clear in the context, is that each of the things they did were in submission to the law God had given to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. They did not do anything to Achan that had not been prescribed in that law. They were entirely faithful to the law of Moses. Now, whether we agree with what God had the Israelites do to those who deliberately and intentionally forsook the covenant of Sinai is another question. But the fact that this was not a spontaneous response But an obedient response to an established set of laws is important. For the law, sin represents a type of cancer that must be excised before it spreads. There were no prisons as we know them in ancient Israel, nor were there any in the Judaism of Jesus' day. Some breaches of law could be handled by sacrifice or recompense according to the law, others only by execution. In the Law of Moses, judgment was only secondarily a deterrent and in most cases, not a form of rehabilitation. Judgment was about isolating and purging wickedness from the larger community. The enemy, in this way of thinking, is not people, but the wickedness some have embraced. In the New Testament, the apostle Paul seems to speak out of this assumption as well. In Ephesians chapter six, verse 12, he wrote the following, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. For the writers of the New Testament, those who choose evil, invite the very forces that would undo creation and human life into human communities. It's interesting, even today, that copycat crimes are common enough to have a name. For the law of Moses, lawbreaking is as contagious as the flu. In many ways, this was part of the justification of the execution of Jesus himself. Their intention was to excise his influence, his contagiousness from the community. Now, Jesus confessed in Matthew chapter five, prior to the context we're looking at today, that he was not attempting to invalidate the law of Moses with his teachings. Even so, in his teachings and by his example, Jesus has helped us to understand that the law of Moses was starting humanity on a road to another place. Jesus has helped us to see where the communication of God throughout human history has always been pointing, And I don't believe Jesus was discarding the assumptions of the Law of Moses that we've just been discussing. What I do believe is Jesus was revealing, however necessary judgment and punishment may be, we must never neglect the preciousness to God of those who embrace evil. Jesus has helped us to understand that the judgment that God requires of us has always been limited that it will fall first on those who judge, and that it requires the safeguarding of the preciousness of lawbreakers. Judgment seems today to have become synonymous with condemnation and with shame. Discernment seems to have been confused with, cl- with certainty. I think Dallas Willard can help us with Jesus' intention. He's written the following in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. If we would really help those close to us and dear, and if we would learn to live together with our family and neighbors in the power of the kingdom, we must abandon the deeply rooted human practice of condemning and blaming. This is what Jesus means when he says, judge not. He's telling us that we should and that we can become the kind of person who does not condemn or blame others. And we do so, as we do so, the power of God's kingdom will be more freely available to bless and guide those around us into his ways. When we condemn another, we really communicate that he or she is, in some deep and just, possibly irredeemable way, bad—bad as a whole—and to be rejected. We must discern between the way of Jesus and the way of the world. Jesus has affirmed that some in our world must be entrusted with the responsibility of determining a just response to the harm we do to one another. The Scriptures consistently uphold the goodness of government and systems of jurisprudence. The Apostle Paul, for instance, has confessed the following in his epistle to the Romans. This is in Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a servant of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a servant of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So We must say that, but even with this said, for Jesus, human judgment must never be conflated with the judgment of God. Final condemnation and true justice will always lie outside the grasp of human judges. God has not assigned humans with the responsibility to make final and lasting decisions about true justice. We have been entrusted with temporary responses to human evil that are necessarily limited and prone to error. God has made us responsible through government and law to limit the spread of evil and destructive behavior. But judges, too, will answer to God for the judgments they have passed on others. So we must be humble and cautious, knowing that our justice is always imperfect and prone to error, weakness, and assumption, and ignorance. Let's remind ourselves of Jesus' warning in these verses. Matthew 7, verse 2. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Again, I think Dallas Willard can help. This is also from the Divine Conspiracy. How does he know that those who judge, in the sense of condemning others, are hypocrites? Is it merely that there must be something wrong with us because there's something wrong with everyone, and that we should not condemn others until we are perfect? No, that's not it. Rather, it's because he understands what condemnation is and involves. Condemnation is the board in our eye. He knows that the mere fact that we are condemning someone shows our heart does not have the kingdom rightness he has been talking about. Condemnation, especially with its usual accompaniments of anger and contempt and self-rightness, blinds us to the reality of the other person. We cannot see clearly how to assist our brother because we cannot see our brother. And we will never know how to truly help him until we have grown into the kind of person who does not condemn period for jesus human justice must endeavor to lay down our condemnation and blame in order to see the other person and to see another person we must see that to god all people are holy and all people are precious as jesus continued in matthew chapter 7 verse 6 do not give what is holy to dogs And do not throw your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you to pieces." When I first read this verse, I assumed that Jesus had just dropped an isolated proverb into the middle of his teaching. I can remember being taught in one form or another that this meant that we shouldn't share the gospel with those who weren't interested in it. I'm indebted to David Garland for helping me to hear Jesus' true intent in Matthew. Garland has written the following in his commentary on Matthew's Gospel. The point would seem to be that one should not give valued things to those who cannot appreciate them, but it also emphasizes the danger in doing so. Pigs trample the pearls when they discover that they are inedible and packs of scavenging dogs viciously attack. It's unclear, however, what it is that is holy and what are the pearls. The simile can have quite different meanings in different contexts. In the Matthean context, however, It would seem to be connected with judging members of the fellowship. What is holy and the pearls could refer to the character of the brother or sister that is to be held dear. One is not to expose them to humiliation and bring discredit to the community by making public one's judgments of a brother or sister. This parable seems central to Jesus teaching on judgment in this passage. What Jesus is helping us to see is that those who are being judged are precious. They are the pearls. We should never throw them to the ravenous crowds, crying for blood or justice or whatever else. For Jesus, human judgment must never be conflated with condemnation or with true justice. And human justice must endeavor to lay down our condemnation and blame in order to see the other person. And human justice must treat even the one who has been decided to be in the wrong as holy, as precious. It may be given to humans to set up systems by which behavior can be judged and, if necessary, punished. But only God can condemn. To quote Dallas Willard once more, Anger and condemnation, like vengeance, are safely left to God. We must be aware of believing that it's okay for us to condemn as long as we are condemning the right things. It is not so simple as all that. I can trust Jesus to go into the temple and drive out those who were profiting from religion, beating them with a rope. I cannot trust myself to do so. When we're tasked with judging on earth, we're tasked with discerning to the best of our ability what behavior is acceptable, what behavior is not, and what a just consequence might be. We're humans and we can be wrong about any of these decisions. Only God has the perspective necessary and the wisdom required to acquit or to condemn. All we can do is discern our best guess. And because of this, we must never judge from a place of condemnation or blame or self-rightness. That's the plank that must be removed from our eye. When we must discern and when we must judge, we must do so seeing the person and not simply our feelings and opinions of her or his behavior. And finally, when action in our fallible discernment is required, we must respect the one being judged and treat the person as precious from beginning to end. Even if that person has not treated, their victims, with the same honor. If we can trust true justice to God, while accepting the role we sometimes must play in this time between the times, we might find the freedom of discerning right from wrong without condemnation or blame. Sadly, in the cultures of the West today, particularly in my own context of the United States of America, public shaming has been embraced as an acceptable part of justice. And we shame people today not only for demonstrably abominable acts, but also for the opinions that a person may hold. We've lost all sense of the preciousness and holiness of all people, especially of those we consider to be our enemies. It would seem that our culture has been under an ever-increasing pressure to legislate not only behavior, but to legislate opinions and the expression thereof. In other words, there are those who would make illegal the expression of opinions that they themselves find repugnant. I suspect that some would seek to criminalize the opinions themselves if they could, but the expression of unpopular opinion seems to be under violent attack in our culture, and the public shaming of those with whom we disagree has become commonplace. Now this is nothing new, of course. There have been many instances in world history in which even our own religious communities have attempted to criminalize the expression of contrary opinions as well and public shaming is not foreign to those contexts, either. Whether we use the term inquisition or fascism or totalitarian dictatorship or censorship or thought police, the scenes that arise in our imaginations are those of monolithic regimes attempting to control by force of law and violence the thoughts and mouths of their constituents. By including freedom of speech in the United States Bill of Rights, the framers of our own national polity sought to protect this very freedom A freedom that has rarely ever been afforded a populace in the recorded history of humanity on earth. There have always been words and sentiments that societies have wished to excise from public discourse. However, the attempt to do so brings with it a myriad of often unforeseen consequences for all who live under its wings. To silence even the most odious of opinions, Is to diminish severely the capacity of a society to encourage the character development of its citizenry, and to forsake the holiness and preciousness of an individual in the name of justice, is as far from the teachings of Jesus as any sin it might attempt to correct. 1920s author and educator R. M. McIver, in his book *The Modern State*, warned long ago as follows. Why must we deny the state this right to regulate opinion, a right which it has owned almost up to our own time? Force allies itself as easily with falsehood as with truth, so that its mere invocation in support of an opinion is a blasphemy against truth. Opinion can only be fought by opinion. Only thus is it possible for truth to be revealed. Force would snatch from truth its only means of victory, Force can suppress opinion, but only by suppressing the mind which is the judge of truth. When the law of the state is exercised over opinion, then it becomes sheer coercion. Law, therefore, becomes false to itself when it would enforce belief. What then is the relation of law to morality? Law cannot prescribe morality. It can prescribe only external actions, and therefore it should prescribe only those actions whose mere fulfillment, from whatever motive, The state adjudges to be conducive to welfare. But it shows us clearly that the law does not and cannot cover all the ground of morality. To turn all moral obligations into legal obligations would be to destroy morality. To legislate against the moral codes of one's fellows is a very grave act, requiring for its justification the most indubitable and universally admitted of social gains, for it is to steal their moral codes, to suppress their characters. Here we find the condemnation of puritanic legislation, which claims that its own morals should be those of all, even to the point of destroying all moral spontaneity that is not their own. There are groups which, with good but narrow intentions, are always urging the state in this retrograde direction. They cannot see that certain actions which they are perfectly entitled to regard as moral offenses are not necessarily a proper object of political legislation. They demand censorship of the stage, of literature, and of art, assigning thereby to some executive official the power of deciding in advance what a whole people shall be permitted to read and think and witness and enjoy." That's the end of the quotation. If we as a society are to have any chance at finding unity within our diversity, our government must ensure that opinions are permitted to be voiced and confronted with contrary or alternative opinions. If we continue to bend to the pressure to outlaw words and opinions which offend, or even disgust, we will sow the seeds of our own undoing. The following words from MacIver might do more to explain the social unrest of our times than the words of any prophet at any time. MacIver writes this, the inner sanction of morality should never be confused with that of political law. We obey the law not necessarily because we think that the law is right, but because we think it right to obey the law. Otherwise, the obedience of every minority would rest on compulsion, and there would be so much friction in the state that its working would be fatally embarrassed. The end of that quotation. Perhaps the following excerpt from a speech written for the character Jean-Luc Picard from the Star Trek series The Next Generation might drive home our peril. That character said these words, When the first link of the chain is forged, the first speech censored, the first thought forbidden, the first freedom denied, chains us all irrevocably. The first time any man's freedom is trodden upon, we're all damaged. Villains who twirl their mustaches are easy to spot. Those who clothe themselves in good deeds are well camouflaged. But she or someone like her will always be with us, waiting for the right climate in which to flourish, spreading fear in the name of righteousness. Vigilance, that's the price we must continually pay. That's the end of those quotations. For Christians, we must love our enemies by allowing them to speak against us. We must remember that however odious the act, grotesque the crime, or offensive the opinion, humanity is a creation of God and are holy and precious in his sight. We must never throw what is holy and precious to God, to the dogs. Certainly, crimes must be ascertained and punished, and those who commit evil in this world must face just consequences for their behaviors. But beware those who would judge in the ways Jesus has warned against, those who would throw the wicked to the dogs to be torn apart. For the way in which you judge others, in this way you yourself will be judged. The dogs will turn on you, as quickly as they did your enemy. For those who are not Christians, you will enslave yourselves if you insist on not allowing contrary voices to speak against you. The tyranny of the state is sown when its people wish to outlaw opinions with which they do not agree. The thought police we enlist will inevitably come after us once our enemies are vanquished. Let's learn to protect the right to think and to speak of those whose opinions we find repugnant. Let's confront opinion with opinion, and let's remember that the justice we ask for against others, we are also asking against ourselves. Once that sword is drawn, we will not be able to control how it is wielded.